So if you're joining with us for the first time this morning, we began a series a couple weeks ago entitled, How Long, O Lord? And what we've said is that Advent is a season marked out by waiting. We as a people standing between God's promise and the fulfillment of that promise. And as we wait for the fulfillment, we wait in a place of longing. We want God to act and to work and to move. And what I want to talk to you about today is our longing that we have for home. And so I want to share with you a message this morning entitled, I'll Be Home for Christmas. Now, of course, the title of today's sermon is drawn from Bing Crosby's 1943 classic, I'll Be Home for Christmas. You guys know this one, right? <laughs> and I was thinking about this week just how popular this song is. I'm 43, which by the way, I'll be 44 tomorrow. So I wanted to tell you today I'm 43 because it's the last day I can say that. But I'm 43, and it, and it has to be the case that every year since I've been on this earth that I have heard that, this song every year during this time of year, and probably multiple times hearing this song. And I've heard it in the mall, I've heard it in my car running Christmas errands, and I've heard it in the living room decorating the tree, and at Christmas parties, and at Target, and at Trader Joe's. And I've heard it sung by Bing Crosby, and B.B. King, and Elvis Presley, and Frank Sinatra, and Al Green, and Amy Grant, and Bob Dylan, and Bette Midler, and Perry Como, and Harry Connick Jr., and John Stuther's favorite artist, Justin Bieber. Now, perhaps one of the reasons why this song is so popular is that almost more than any other song that we hear, it plays on and it evokes that deep nostalgia that lies below the surface in most of our hearts, a deep longing for home. I wonder if you can even feel it. You can even hear it as you kind of like heard the song play for you today. Now, the song, I did a little research on it. It was originally written uh, in the 40s during World War II, and it was written with soldiers who were overseas in mind, those who were far away from family, from loved ones, who were on foreign soil and in harm's way, and who were longing during the season to be home for Christmas. And the song ends on a melancholy note. He says, I'll be home for Christmas if only in my what? Dreams. It's as if he has this ache, this longing, yet he knows it's not going to be fulfilled. And I think all of us have this almost gravitational pull in our hearts toward home. We have our sayings like home sweet home. And there's no place like home. And we even give it a name to this universal longing. It's called homesickness. And we, have all, we all have a longing to be in a place where we belong and where we feel at home with ourselves and with our lives. And, and I think for most of us, this longing, it lays dormant most of the year, latent right below the surface, waiting to be called forth and evoked by, you know, uh, Bing Crosby or Linus reading Luke 2 or, you know, decorating the tree and the Christmas lights or whatever. During this coziest of holidays, it sort of evokes, it calls forth this longing for home. Well, this morning, I want to talk to you. I want to give some sustained theological reflection to our longing, this deep longing that we have for home. You know, all of the great thinkers, the philosophers, theologians, they have noticed this ache, this longing, this sense of alienation and estrangement that most of humanity at some point in their life feels, as if 
They're not quite where they need to be. There's something out of place, something not right. They're estranged and they long for home. And I think if we pay attention to this deep longing in our hearts, we learn something very powerful, something very profound about human existence, about God, and about our life in this world. And so this morning, that's what we're going to be doing. So we're going to be giving some sustained reflection to the idea, this, this longing for home. Now, one of the interesting things about the Bible when you turn to it is that within the Bible... One of the macro themes, you could say probably one of the three or four main themes in the Bible is the theme of exile and homecoming. In other words, the Bible addresses a people who are homeless and homesick and who long for home. And in the Old Testament, it addresses Israel in a place of exile. And what is exile? Exile is a place of homelessness and it's a place of homesickness where you're longing for home. And again and again, the Old Testament prophets address Israel as she exists in the state of Israel far from her homeland, and it addresses this longing for home, and it does so in a way that lets us know that this is speaking about something that is transcendent, that's bigger than simply their own state at that time and place. And a text that speaks to us about this issue of exile and homecoming is Isaiah chapter 19. And so we're going to be looking at this text just briefly this morning. I, I was, uh, my wife read scripture this morning, and it was funny. She looked at the text last night. She's like, this is an obscure text. And I don't know if you've heard it, but it, it had some stuff about the Assyrians and the Egyptians and Israel. And you're like, huh, what's, what does that have to do with Christmas? Well, This book, Isaiah, was written to Israel as she was on the verge of heading into exile. And then Isaiah walks with Israel as she goes into exile. And again and again and again, he speaks to her about her exile and about a promise that God would bring her back home. But in this text, he speaks beyond what God would do for Israel, and he speaks what he's going to do for the nations as typified in Egypt and Assyria. And look at what he says in verse 19. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar of the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. And get this, look at what it says next. When they cry to the Lord, when who cries to the Lord? When the Egyptians cry to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and a defender and will deliver them. Now, here's what's fascinating about this text. Is language that he's using here was language that was applied to Israel when Israel was, as it were, in exile when she was enslaved to Egypt. Only there, it was Israel who would cry to the Lord and he would hear as Israel cried in the Lord in the midst of her oppression, and who was oppressing Israel at that time? It was Egypt. But here, the language of the Exodus, when God's going to deliver Israel, take her out, and bring her home into the promised land, is now applied to Egypt. And now Egypt is oppressed, and they call out to the Lord, and the Lord hears and responds to their cries. And look at what it says. And when they cried to the Lord, because they are oppressors, he will deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in the day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And then look what it says down in verse 24. And in that day, 
Israel will be a third with Egypt and Assyria. Assyria was Israel's largest enemy to the north. Egypt was their largest enemy to the south. They were always threatened by these two global powers in their day. And here he says, the day is coming when Israel, along with Assyria and the Egyptians, are going to be a blessing in the midst of the earth. And the Lord of hosts uh, has blessed, saying, blessed be my people Egypt and my people Assyria and my people Israel. He basically says, as I brought Israel home to me, I'm going to bring Assyria and Egypt. I'm going to take them out of exile and I'm going to bring them home. Now, why, as Israel stands going into, you know, as she stands on the verge of going into exile, why does the prophet talk about Assyria and Egypt? And I think the answer is this. I think what he's telling us is that exile is not just an Israel problem. Exile is a human problem. Theologian, church historian named Alistair McGrath points out how that the Garden of Eden is an image, it's a metaphor that is all over medieval art. And he goes on to describe that what gripped medieval Christians was, was uh, this, quote, nostalgia for paradise, a longing for an original innocence, a longing for Edom where all in the world was right, where there was peace and where there is God. And then he says this, the sad story of, quote, paradise lost is entrenched within the human soul, and we long to go back. We long for that original innocence. We long for that idyllic state lost at the dawn of humanity. Which is pretty profound what he's saying. If you go back to the beginning in the book of Genesis, one of the things we learn is that the reason why we feel like exiles, the reason why deep, latent, below the surface, we have this ache, this longing for something that the world doesn't seem to satiate, is because we aren't really home. Not really. We're told there that we were created in the beginning to live in the garden of God, and there was the world, the home that we were built for, a place in which there was no parting from love and no death and no disease. It was all these things because it was life before the face of God and in his presence. And there we were to adore and to serve in his infinite majesty and to know and enjoy his infinite beauty. That was your original home. That is the true country that you were made for. However, the Bible tells us that we turned our back on God we chafed under his authority. We wanted to live without him and his interference into our life. And we got cast out of the garden, sent into exile, alienated from God, and we lost our home. And the Bible says that we've been wandering as spiritual exiles ever since. And what that simply means, and I wonder if you know this experience in your own life, it just oftentimes feels like the deepest longings that we have they don't seem to fit what the world is able to meet. You know, a few years back, I was in um, uh, the store H&M, and I was shopping for a pair of jeans. And um, if you've ever been in H&M, you know that they have three types of jeans. They have slim, they have skinny, and then they have super skinny jeans. 
And uh, out of the corner of my eye, I saw this, this guy like kind of hobbling out of the dressing room. And his, uh, I don't know if it was his wife or his girlfriend, but he was somewhere well beyond middle-aged, uh, larger, he had, and he had no business wearing skin, super skinny. But there he was. And I just looked at him and I just said, dude, the body doesn't fit the jeans. I didn't actually say that to him, I, but I thought it. But this is a, this is a, this is a parable. <laughs> Your soul and the deep, transcendent, infinite longings that you have don't fit what this, earth, what this world is able to meet. We long for bodies that run and don't grow weary, and yet we have become subject to disease and aging and death. We long for a love that lasts, and yet all of our relationships are subject to the inevitable entropy of time, and they crumble in our hands. And even people who stay true to us die and leave us, or we die and we leave them. And though we long to make a difference in the world through our work, we experience endless frustration. And we never fully realize our hopes and dreams, and it's because our soul and our deepest longings don't fit the fallen, broken world we live in. We're living in a world where we feel estranged, where we are homeless and homesick. And if you stop to listen to the echoes in your heart, if you stop to listen to your heart, you start to hear the echoes of exile everywhere. It's there in the philosophers. You know, you remember them from Philosophy 101, Karl Marx, Heidegger, Hegel, Kierkegaard, Jean-Paul Sartre. They all spoke of the same problem, alienation, estrangement. And they had different angles, different ways in which they understood it, but they were speaking of this deep estrangement that we experience in the world from ourselves and from others. But it's not just there in the philosophers, it's also there in the movies, you know, the original Wizard of Oz with Judy Garland. What's the refrain in that movie? There's no place like home. There's no place like home. And what is that story about? It's about a young lady who's estranged. She's alienated. She's in exile, and she's longing to go home. Think about The, waking, the Walking Dead. Now, I'm not recommending it. If you watch it, that's on you, not me. But I was reading an article the other day about The Walking Dead. It was noting that The Walking Dead is not really about zombies. It's really about alienation. It's about people who feel estranged from the world. They, they live in a world that doesn't seem to fit them. And it's there also, not only in our movies, not only in the philosophers, it's there in our music. You know, the Lumineers' enduring classic, Ho Hey. You know, the, the, the lead singer says sarcastically, so show me family and all, the and all the blood that I would bleed. I don't know where I belong. I don't know where I went wrong, but I can write a song, he says. What is that about? It's about alienation. And it's there in your own soul. You know, you saw it on the tree in the corner when you walked in. Our tree is filled with longings in this community that are unmet. We long for something eternal that doesn't seem to be satiated in this world. So what do you do with that? I mean, what do you do with the fact that it seems like your longings don't seem to match with what the world is able to satisfy? And I think really there's only two answers to this problem. It could be that your deep longings are a lie. 
And it's a neurotic fancy. You long for something eternal, but there's really no such thing. But it could also mean that your deepest longings are the truest index of our real condition. A few years back, I went to a course in Oxford with uh, C.S. Lewis. Not with, he wasn't teaching the course. <laughs> He's long dead. But it was a course about C.S. Lewis, and it was in the little city of Oxford, because uh, that's where he was from, and so it was like this week-long intensive. And we learned all about his life. And it was pretty fascinating because, you know, a lot of you will know that C.S. Lewis was, you know, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia and, you know, a great fantasy writer. But what you may not know is one is that C.S. Lewis was a serious academic. And he taught at Oxford and Cambridge. And the field that he taught in was fairy stories and like myth. That was kind of his, his, his thing. And he loved mythology. He just loved it. He said that, you know, when he was little and he would read the stuff, it would just like tie so deep down into his soul. But then his experience of the world was very harsh. He served in World War I when he was like 20, watched friends of his die in the trenches. Uh, um, um, his mother died when he was young, and he just, he, he, and he said that uh, he, he didn't become a, a follower of Jesus until his late 20s, and looking back on his, his life before his conversion, he said this. He said, nearly all that I loved, I believed to be imaginary. You think about all the myths, all the fairy stories, he says, nearly all that I, be- I loved, I believed to be imaginary. And nearly all that I believed to be real, I thought grim and meaningless. But later, after his conversion, this all changed for him. And listen to what he says after kind of looking back. And he reinterprets his own experience and he says this. This is profound. He says, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. You know, some of you, you might be new to Christianity, you're new to the Bible, and when you open up the Bible, it just seems like a weird, strange book. And in many ways, it is weird and strange in its form because it was written so long ago by so many different people in different places. And yet the reason why the Bible is the most read book in the history of humanity, and the reason why, you know, people have viewed it as a sacred text is because of the profound way it speaks about the human condition. And the Bible names the problem of our own experience of the world. It says, you have been estranged from God. Humanity is in exile. We are homesick and homeless. But then I want you to turn back to Isaiah because he moves from the problem of exile to the promise of homecoming. And here's the good news. He says to the Assyrians, these violent people and the Egyptians, this nation that worship many different gods, he talks to them about this dramatic day when they will be reunited with God and with each other and Israel and Assyria and Egypt will all be together in one new family. They will all be home together. Verse 24, in that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. That word earth uh, in the Hebrew language is translated, it can be translated the land. 
Speaking of the promised land, which for Israel was home. Assyria, Egypt, Israel, they're all going to be back home with God to the place. But then it's more than being back home in a place. He speaks much more personal than that. Whom the Lord of hosts is blessing, blessed be Egypt, my people. And Assyria, the work of my hands. And Israel, my inheritance. You know, home is about a lot of things, right? Home is about space and place. You know, our family for about seven years was off in exile in New Mexico, <laughs> off in the desert, in the wilderness, wandering, until God brought us home to the promised land, Southern California. <laughs> but there's so much I love about Southern California. We lived for 10 years in Seal Beach, and I have such great memories of walking in Old Town, going down to Hennessy's or Taco Surf for, for dinner, going for a walk on the pier. Space and place, this is home. But you know, home is deeper than space and place. Home is more personal than that, isn't it? Home is with. It's the people you're with. Home is where you go and everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came, right? I mean, this is home. Home is with. Even Dory knew this. Remember Dory in that great movie, Finding Nemo? What's wrong? You haven't seen Finding Nemo? Are you people American? There's this great scene in Finding Nemo where the bluefish Dory is kind of like floundering around after Marlin, who's on a search to find his son, Nemo. And, um, and Marlin is just frustrated because Dory can't remember anything and she can't keep track of anything. And she, he seems, she seems to be getting in his way. But, um, and then he says, I'm done. I'm going to leave you. I, I, I can't do this anymore. And she just looks at him and she begs him not to leave. And then she blurts out these words. She says, you, you, can't, you can't leave me because I look at you and I'm home. Please, I don't want that to go away. Home is with. Edward Sharp's in the Magnetic Zeros. Do you remember that song? Some of you might. Home, let me come home. No, no, no. Home is whenever I'm with you. Home is with. And what the Bible teaches us is this, is that deep below your longing for home, this nostalgia that you have, this ache in your life, that even sometimes you feel when you're at home, it's still there, it doesn't go away, that deep below, if you scratch below the surface, you will find a deep hunger for God. And what the Bible declares is that your deepest longing for home is ultimately met in the living God. Or as Psalm 90 says, God is our dwelling place. God is our home. Or as Isaac Watts said in that famous hymn called, God, our eternal home. Or as St. Augustine famously put it, our hearts are restless. They're, they're yearning, they're longing for something until they find their rest in God, our home. Or as Frederick Buechner shares, he says it was toward the, the middle of December, I think, that George Buttrick, who was his pastor, said something in a sermon that has always stayed with me. He said that on the previous Sunday as he was leaving the church to go back to the apartment where he lived, he happened to overhear somebody out on the steps asking somebody else, 
are you going home for Christmas? And I can almost see Buttrick with his glasses glittering in the lectern light as he peered out at all those people listening to him in that large, dim sanctuary and asked it again, are you going home for Christmas? And asked it in some sort of way that brought tears to my eyes and made it almost unnecessary for him to move on to his answer to the question, which was that home, finally, is the manger in Bethlehem, the place where at midnight even the oxen kneel. God is home. God is what your deepest heart is longing for, and it's only met in him. You know, Jesus told a story about how God actually came after us in order to bring us home. It's one of his most famous stories, the story of the parable, it's the parable of the prodigal sons. He said there was this father who had two sons, and one of the sons came to him one day and said, hey, dad, uh, I want my inheritance now. You might as well die. I'm just going to take the money, and I'm going to run. And he takes the money, runs off, and he loses it all in just terrible living, sexing, and drinking, and drugging, and doing all the bad stuff or whatever. And he comes to an end of himself, and after he spends all of his money, he winds up in a pig pen in the mud, longing for home. And he decides, I'm going to go back home, and I'm going to cast myself at my father's mercy, and I'm going to say, Dad, just take me back as a servant, and I'll serve you, and you can treat me like a servant. And so he kind of thinks of this plan, and he starts rehearsing the speech in his mind that he's going to say to his dad when he comes home. He's kind of walking the long road home, and he looks up, and all of a sudden he sees his father running to him. And his father runs to him and he throws his arm around him and he calls this big party and he says, everyone needs to party because the son who was lost is now found. Everybody's ecstatic except for one person, his older brother. So the brother's like, what gives, you know? Like, I've been at home on the farm doing all the right things, keeping my nose clean and this guy goes off and you're going to throw him a party. I remember listening to a sermon by Tim Keller on this text, and, and he, he just said, you know, he says, what a true older brother would have done. A true older brother would have left the farm and at great risk and cost to himself would have gone on a far journey, on a long journey into a far country to retrieve his brother who had gone off. And he said, isn't it a shame that we all don't have a big brother like that? He said, but you do. The eternal son of the father left glory and went on a long journey into a far country, into sin and shame, actually himself went into exile so that he might take all of those who are estranged and alienated from God back home to the father. This is what Christmas is about. You know, Christmas and Christianity is about a lot of things. There's ethics involved in Christianity. There's, you know, interesting things about life and truth and philosophy that you can get from Christianity. But at its heart, Christianity is about exile and homecoming. 
And it's about a God who would move heaven and earth to bring his estranged, alienated exiles back home. And this is the good news of Christianity, is that Christ has come to bring us home. Now, as we kind of draw things to a close this morning, I just want to like stand back from all this teaching about exile and homecoming. And I just want to talk to two types of people that might be here this morning. And I want to talk to you who might be here this morning, and maybe you walked in, and you haven't even been able to name it to date, but you actually feel this deep estrangement, kind of like this alienation. You're, you're feeling like there's something missing. And I just want to say that what is missing is God, and the reason it's missing is because we willfully turn away from Him. But that God loves you, and He comes after you. And if you turn and you call out to him, even as the Assyrians, you know, the Israel's enemies, the Egyptians, Israel's oppressors, even as they turned out to God and he came as their deliverer, so too Christ has come into the world to bring you home to the Father. And all you need to do is turn to him. All who call upon the name of the Lord, the scripture says, will be saved. You can come home, come home to the Father, come home to God. God is home and Christ has come to bring you home. But I want to talk to you this morning who might be in a different place. Maybe, you know, you've come home, and yet you still feel like you're not quite home. Like you're a follower of Jesus, you go to church, and yet you have these deep longings that still seem unmet. You're like, I thought I was home. Frecknick Beecher, I put this quote in, your, uh, in the bulletin, but I wanted to read you this. He said this. He said, for outlandish creatures like us, and that word outlandish is very intentional. Those who are out of place in our skin at times. For outlandish creatures like us, on our way to a heart, a brain, and courage, Bethlehem is not the end of our journey, but only the beginning. Not home, but the place through which we must pass if we ever are to reach home at last. Or put it like this. What Advent teaches us is that we all live in a tension between God's promise by his work in Christ and the ultimate fulfillment and culmination of this promise. And we are a people who still, though we've come home to God, we still wait for home. It's like Israel who was in Egypt and God takes them out of Egypt. He rescues them. He says, you're my people, you're home. And yet they still haven't reached the promised land. And if that's you, you kind of feel that that tension. What I want to talk to you about, if that's you, is just manna for a minute. Manna. Say, that's strange. (laughs) Do tell. Talk to me about manna. You know, as Israel was on her journey from Egypt on her way home to the promised land, the gift that God gave her to sustain her on that journey was manna. Now, manna is a very strange, strange thing. Some scholars suggest that manna was, uh, or the substance that they called manna was an excretion of a certain bug that lived parasitically on local tamarisk trees. And because the sap of the trees was so low in nitrogen, the bugs would have to eat like crazy to get proper nutrition. And then they would excrete these big, white, yellowish balls of liquid 
that would fall to the ground, quickly dry into flakes. And this excretion was white, flaky, and it's incredibly nutritious. And it would appear in the morning, and as the day wore on, it would be ruined. And in fact, nomadic uh, Bedouin people to this day have long eaten a substance that they call manna. And what is it? It's secreted bug juice. Now, I don't know if that's what the manna was that the children of Israel were given in the wilderness. I think it's an interesting possibility. But we do know this, that when they received this white flaky substance that was nutritious in the morning, they looked at it and they named it manna, which meant, what? (laughs) That's literally what manna means. It means man, which means what, and then who is is this? Like, what is it? (laughs) The provision of God on the way home to the promised land was strange. It was strange. So first, I want you to see the manna was very strange, but second, I want you to see that manna was not promised land food. It was not the food, it was not the feast they were gonna enjoy when they finally got home. When they got to the promised land, the promised land was a land flowing with milk and honey. There were streams and there was water flowing underneath the land. And it was a place of barley and wheat and abundance, rich, rich abundance. And when they got there, they would feast with all of this glorious promised land food. But manna was not that. It was strange. This leads to a third observation. Although manna was very strange and it was not promised land food, manna would sustain them in the wilderness. It would sustain them, it would nourish them on their journey home. So manna is strange, it's not promised land food, but it, it sustains us on the journey home. It is the provision, it is the gift of God as they journey from exile to home and listen. You and I come into this place with all kinds of unmet longings and desires. Some of you, we could go on, we could just have a disappointment fest, and we could all just go around and talk about all the ways in which we're disappointed. And then there's all sorts of objects of our disappointment. Our job is not turning out the way we wanted it to. We, didn't, we got the promotion, but we don't like the boss. We don't like this church. We got this new pastor, but look at him. I mean, we got, like, we, I, I'm in a community group, but I don't even like those people, you know, and it's not really quite doing it for me, you know. It's not like, it's not really meeting, you know, and then I've got this body, but I've got all these aches and pains. In the, stop. You are surrounded by gift. We, you are surrounded by the provision of God, and it is not the food of the promised land. Very often, the provision of God in your life that sustains you on the journey home is strange. I mean, this church is full of strange people. It seems insufficient. Sometimes you go to a worship service and it just, you know, it doesn't quite, it wasn't as awesome as you wanted it to be. It wasn't as moving as you wanted it to be. It didn't quite do it for you. And yet, it's not the food of the promised land. But you are full of gift and sustenance from the hand of God to carry you and sustain you on your journey home. And so as people who live in between entering into Bethlehem and meeting the one through whom we can ultimately find our way home, 
and actually reaching home, there are always two dangers. One is that you will give up and that you'll just buy into cynicism and you'll throw in the towel and no more hope and no more faith and no more love. The other is is that on your way home, you will just be utterly disappointed because the people around you are just not what you want them to be. This body is not the body you want. Yes, but what you have is a gift from God. And it is enough. It is the good provision of God in your life to take you home. His grace that has brought you safe thus far. Grace in abundance, grace upon grace, grace in the incarnation of the eternal, infinite God among us. Grace in the God who gives himself fully and completely and without reservation on a bloody cross. Grace that gives the very presence of God in his spirit, grace that gives the church and the means of the word and of the sacraments to sustain and nourish us, grace that gives us community around us and a church family, that gives us a spouse and children and grandchildren. Yeah, they're not what you want them to be all the time, but they're enough. They're the gift of God. So as you're journeying home, look up and see manna. See the gift that nourishes you on your journey home and don't lose hope because God will bring you home. He will bring us home. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you that you have not left us alienated. You have not left us estranged. You have come after us You have sent your son Jesus on a long journey into a far country. Lord Jesus, you have gone into exile so that you might bring we who are exiled and estranged back home. You entered into that great place of divine estrangement and forsakenness so that we who are estranged and forsaken might be made sons and daughters of God. Oh God, fill us with hope, fill us with faith to believe these great promises and open our eyes to see the manna that you've given us to sustain us on the journey home. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.